Welcome to Pastor Matters, the podcast of the Center for Preaching and Pastoral Leadership at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We hope this conversation will both equip and encourage you to lead healthy churches that make disciples for the glory of God. I'm Brandon Ward. And I'm Ron Jor We want to thank you for listening to another episode of Pastor Matters. Today, Ron Jor and I are joined by Dr. Tate Cockrell to discuss pastors and premarital counseling. Dr. Cockrell serves as Associate Professor of Counseling and is the Director of the DMIN program here at Southeastern. Quick fact about Dr. Cockrell, his office is actually located right next to the Pastor Center, for those that are familiar with Southeastern's layout in Patterson Hall. And I think it's safe to say, Dr. Cockrell, we are representing the state of Mississippi really well. I think we've kind of taken over that whole side of our floor. You're from Mississippi. I'm from Mississippi. And we also have a number of employees in your office that are from Mississippi. That's exactly right. So I think we're... I think we're we're repping pretty well. Yeah, the SIP kind of own, owns that whole that whole end of the hallway. That's right, Ron Jor, How do you feel about that? <laughs> no, no disrespect, but it would be nice to have a few more Marylanders. Oh <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, well, brother, thank you for joining today's discussion. So let's get into some questions. We're having this conversation today on on premarital counseling, and and many pastors have done and do counseling sessions, uh, premarital counseling sessions. Some require them, some don't. So my first question is, should pastors require premarital counseling when they agree to officiate someone's wedding? Why or why not? I absolutely believe that pastors ought to require it. Uh, I've done it ever since I've been in ministry and have moved. Most of the churches that I've been a part of have encouraged their pastors to adopt a similar policy that they would not marry someone that either they didn't, either, either they did the premarital counseling or they had premarital counseling approved. Uh, so I, I absolutely think that it's something that they, that they ought to require. The personal reason why, why I do it is, one, I feel like when I officiate a wedding, I'm, I'm giving my endorsement of that, that couple getting married. If, I, right. if I've not done premarital counseling with them, I don't know them well enough to say, you know, these folks are, are healthy enough, have the emotional, relational, spiritual maturity, uh, you know, that, that they actually should get married. So I think from a personal perspective, because I, I feel like I'm going to have to give an account of that one day for the people that I kind of endorsed and said, you know, yeah, these people should get married. I think that's one. I think number two, um, it's just really, it's kind of low-hanging fruit in terms of marriage success. I mean, the statistics don't lie. You reduce uh, the the chances of divorce are reduced by 80% if they have premarital counseling versus if they don't have premarital counseling. So to me, that's just a really easy thing. Like, I won't marry you unless you get premarital success. I mean, unless you get premarital counseling. And the reason why I'm telling you that is because I care not just about your wedding. Yeah. I care about your marriage. Like, you're asking me to marry you in a wedding ceremony, and I care about that, but I don't care nearly as much about the wedding as I do your marital success. And if you're willing to invest what we know today is the average cost of a wedding, $30,000, if you're willing to invest $30,000 of your finances for this wedding, surely you can invest eight to 10 hours of your life and a few hundred dollars to be able to get something that's going to impact not just the 30-minute ceremony, but the next... 50 years of your life, right. you know, in order to kind of not guarantee, but greatly enhance uh, the likelihood that that marriage is going to be successful and enjoyable. Right. 
I tell you, $30,000 makes me so glad that I got married when I did. Okay. Uh, inflation is something else, I tell you. Um, what are some things that pastors should do and, and what are some things that they should ask uh, in the premarital counseling session? Great question, Ron Jure. I think number one, we always want to do kind of a faith assessment of uh, each person in the couple. We want to find out if they're believers, and not just are they believers, but like what's God doing in their life. You know, it's it. The easy question is, you know, are you a Christian? Are you saved? It's the four follow up questions after that. You know, like what are your practices in the spiritual disciplines? Are you a member of a church? Do you, you know, do you read the Bible and pray together regularly? I mean, kind of assessing not just are they saved, but like are they on the same page spiritually? Mm-hmm. It's not uncommon whenever I begin to ask those questions of couples to find out that maybe one of them was a really strong believer and the other person in pursuit of the really strong believer realized I got to up my game a little bit spiritually. And so, <laughs> You know, they they begin to kind of talk a really good game because they know they're not going to land the boy or land the girl unless they unless they do that. But when you drill down to those four or five additional follow up questions, you find out that they're they're not necessarily equally yoked in terms of their desire for a pursuit of Christ. So I think we want to ask some questions related to that. Um, one of the things that I do, and, and by the way, pastors can do this, and if, you're, uh, if your listeners want information, they can go to uh, Prepare Enrich, uh, to the Prepare Enrich website. They can Google Prepare Enrich. Uh, but one of the things I do with every single one of my couples is they take an inventory called the Prepare Enrich. And it's years ago was developed specifically in the very beginning, I think, for pastors to be able to assess where an engaged or married couple is in their relationship. So it assesses nine core areas of their relationship, things like communication, conflict, finances, family of origin. And there's like nine big areas that we know if a couple does good in these areas, they're going to have a good and healthy marriage. So whenever I get ready to do premarital counseling, I'm not just presenting the same canned material with every single couple. I'm presenting material based on what did I learn about this couple after assessing where they are? So maybe they're doing fantastic in communication, and I don't have to spend two whole sessions talking about communication. I can talk about what they're doing good, and I can encourage them and say, hey, keep doing that really, really well. But man, on conflict resolution, like you guys really need some help. We really need to drill down here. Or maybe they do really good at communication and conflict, but man, their family of origin one of them comes from an enmeshed family system. One of them comes from an individualistic family system. They're about to get married, and it's about to get real tough real quick. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, the old saying is uh, every marriage is a family of origin trying to reproduce itself in the new family. And so when these two people marry, if they come from different family systems, each one of those family systems is going to try to reproduce themselves in this mm-hmm. new marriage. And so if they've got some struggles in that area, then we can drill down and talk about those things specifically. But we do know that for uh, for couples, when they come in for premarital, we do know that there are kind of some basic building blocks that we want to make sure that even if a pastor doesn't do an assessment like a prepare and rich or something like that, uh, that we want to make sure we assess in some basic areas like communication, conflict resolution, finances, family of origin, uh, healthy sexuality and faith. Like we mm-hmm. want to make sure those six areas, right. we assess those every single time. So for a pastor out there that's going to require premarital counseling, I would say at a bare minimum, those six areas, we want to make sure that they yeah. that they hit those six every mm-hmm. time. The big mm-hmm. thing is making sure you have a plan, a plan. an intentional yeah. plan. That's right. I'm, I've actually been shocked with, with friends that I've had that have done premarital counseling, and I've asked them to explain some of the things they've done, and they 
the pastor never walked them through conflict management right. or any of these massive things. And it's yeah. like, well, was that even premarital count? Like, what were y'all doing? Yeah. You know? yeah. Oh, listen, Wendy and I, uh, when we got married, um, our premarital counseling consisted of our pastor asking us, you know, what verses that did we want him to read in, you know, in our wedding. And basically the, the counseling consisted of if you just love Jesus more and you love each other, then everything will be okay. Yeah. So when we got married, I had no idea, no idea that that we would actually have differences. I just assumed that whenever we said I do, that somehow God would miraculously just make us agree on everything. And yeah. certainly if if we didn't agree that she would just do what I said, you yeah. know, and she would, you know, she would just change based on what I wanted or what I enjoyed. So you right. can imagine that, you know, three days into our honeymoon, yeah. <laughs> all of that world comes crashing down really, really, really quickly, yeah. you know. For so. us, we were, we, we never even had premarital counseling because our pastor of our church was left. So there was nobody there. So we didn't really have anybody to walk us through. So that first year of marriage was wild. Yep. We were just yep. trying to figure out how to do things, right. how to, how to, how to uh, come to an agreement, how to, uh, you know, find reconciliation and, you know, all of that. So yeah, think, think about this. The, uh, the average human being makes 30,000 decisions a day. Wow. Okay. 30,000 decisions a day. What's the likelihood that the 30,000 decisions that I make today is going to line up perfectly with the 30,000 decisions mm-hmm. that my wife makes today mm-hmm. and that we're we're not going to have any conflict? You know, I say that all the time to couples. Like the 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 number, the sheer number and the complexity of decisions that we make during the course of a day make opportunities yeah. for differences, disagreements, and ultimately conflict. It makes it inevitable. Yeah. Like So if nobody ever teaches you that— and nobody ever teaches you how to resolve that and what that needs to look like. Marriage, marriage can be pretty miserable. Like yeah. my 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 former mentor, Dr. Jim Hedrick, used to say, relationships can be the spice of life or they can be the kiss of death. Mm. You know, and if you don't know how to resolve conflict, it's the kiss of death. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So should pastors and we already kind of established premarital counseling should be something pastors should require. What about post wedding? Should should pastors offer or even require maybe a couple of counseling sessions after the wedding? If so, what guidelines would you recommend yeah. with that? And may I just say, I'm glad that you said post-wedding and not post-marital. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, I may have actually done that before. I, yeah. I'm not going not gonna to show my hand on that. Yeah. Uh, Brandon, I think the answer to that question is yes. And so whenever I do premarital counseling, it's usually eight to ten sessions. Uh, I, I always require at least one post-wedding session. And so now how long after that would you say? Nine, so what we do is, and I have them go ahead and put it on the calendar before their wedding, have them go ahead and schedule it so that they know it's coming up, it's on it's on such and such a date. Um, but we have them schedule it 90 days out. So 90 days after their wedding, I want them to come in and I want to do a follow-up. So I can ask them the question, how did the honeymoon go? You know, how's the first 90 days been? What do you need help with that we didn't cover in premarital counseling? Because every couple's different. Mm-hmm. You can't possibly cover every nuance that every couple's going to face. And so, you know, I, I say all the time that, you know, couples fight over big things, you know, like, uh, you know, finances and family of origin and all that. And then they fight over really big things, like whether or not they unroll the toilet paper from the front <laughs> of the roll, the way all saved people do, or do they unroll it from the back of the roll the way the pagans do, you know, like that. But it's amazing, yeah. again, those number of things. Things that we can do different that in that first 90 days when they're actually living in the same home, sleeping in the same bed, breathing the same air, 
you don't know what a lot of those differences are until that actually happens. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Would you offer premarital counseling to an engaged couple that's living together? First off, I don't even know what the what the stats are uh, for couples, you know that that are uh, cohabitating and so on, you know, prior to marriage. But, but greater than you... greater than fifty percent. The current stats are greater than fifty percent of first time marriages. Couples live together before they get married. Wow. So roughly really one, high? yes, one out of wow. one out of every two first time marriages they live together before they get married. Wow. So would you give premarital counseling to a couple that's living? I would, uh, but there's a couple of caveats to that, Ron Jor. So um, here's my philosophy about counseling with a variety of, uh, whether we're talking about cohabitating couples or even same-sex couples, like Mm -hmm. would I provide counseling? My answer to that question is always yes, understanding that when they come to counseling that I'm going to make my opinion about those things known. I can't divorce who I am as a biblical counselor from what I believe and you know, what I believe is right and true, you know, biblically and theologically. Mm-hmm. So what I do counseling for them, yes, for the sheer reason that it would give me influence with them over the weeks that we're together. I would tell them in a first session that my request of them would be that they not live together while we're going through premarital counseling. And I give them kind of a laundry list of here are the reasons why, you know, you living in the same home, sleeping in the same bed, likely, mm-hmm. you know, uh, engaging in premarital sex, why, why all that's bad. I lay that out. But I don't tell them, like, I won't see you, you know, if you won't do it. Now, mm-hmm. I won't marry them mm-hmm. if they don't abide by that rule. So, like, if they ask me to not only do the premarital counseling but also do their wedding, that is a place where I could draw the line and say, I refuse to marry you unless you, you know, stop cohabitating. Sure. You know, like, you have to do that or I'm, I'm not going to do the wedding. But I would do the counseling merely for the opportunity to be able to influence them, hopefully with the truth of the gospel and that, mm-hmm. that they would, you know, correct those behaviors. Yeah. So you gave that as as um, an instance where you would say, I'm, I'm not going to do the wedding. And, you know, in that, are there other situations where you say, you know, maybe A, no, I, I wouldn't do the wedding or B, you know, I really don't think y'all should get married. Yeah. Uh, I get that question all the time. Uh, I'll I'll start with the second one first. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't ever tell somebody they shouldn't get married, but I've told quite a few couples over the years they shouldn't get married right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I just don't believe you're ready. I I, I don't for one or both of you is not in in a place where uh, where you are having the maturity or there are you know certain things that, that really you would find it easier to solve these things prior to being in the same room, sleeping in the same bed, you know, breathing sure. the same air, it would be a lot easier to deal with these if you weren't married yet. And so I've, I've frequently said that. Um, I don't, like, for instance, when inventory results and stuff come back, like, I don't believe in personality compatibility. I believe, there, you know, there's no, like, magic combination of this. There's certainly personalities that it, they find it easier to get along, mm-hmm. um, and certain personalities it makes it more difficult. But by God's grace, any combination of marriage personalities and family of origins and systems and types of families, they can make it and have God-glorifying, satisfying, awesome relationships. So I'm never one that's like, you shouldn't get married due to like personality incompatibility. I just, I don't, I don't believe in that. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of times when couples will come to me and I'll look at their inventory results. And I mean, their relationship dynamics are just abysmal. Like Mm -hmm. they are really unhealthy. Like it's that weird, I call it the fifth grade love. It's the 
I love you, but I don't like you. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I love you, but I can't stand you, and I really don't want to be in your presence. So uh-huh. I'm going to write I love you all over my 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 backpack or my book bag or you know right. my, my notebook or whatever. I like the idea. Yeah, that's that's exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, I like the idea of being married to you, but then whenever we're together, like we just fight like cats and dogs. Mm-hmm. Like I I will tell them up front, like you're just not ready. You're mm-hmm. just not ready to be married. Sure. And there have been times when I have said to somebody who has asked me to do the wedding, I have said I don't think that you need to get married yet. And, and I won't marry you if you decide to go ahead and get married now mm. because I, I think that I'm going to be contributing to a problem. I think there may even be a high likelihood that this marriage is going to be pretty unhealthy if you go ahead and, and do this now, you know, versus doing it versus doing it later. Sure, so, sure. So we've covered a little bit of this already, but premarital counseling provides the guardrails, right, right. for couples. Obviously, conflict resolution is a major part of premarital counseling, but but should counseling also include topics, and you've kind of alluded to this some, but topics like birth control, adoption, finances, the family dynamics with in-laws, uh, topics like that? They, it absolutely should. And, I mean, I'll go uh, I'll go a step further and, and say even just basic sex education. In, you know, in, in today's culture, it's hard to believe that someone wouldn't even just have basic sex, sex education. But for couples that have honored one another in their purity and who have no idea what to expect in terms of sexual intimacy, like those are conversations that we need to have with, with premarital couples. Just basic things like sex education and, you know, birth control and and like like that's a big topic. Like some some birth control are actually abortive in nature. Like they right. actually allow conception to occur, but they don't allow pregnancy to uh, to be successful. Mm-hmm. And so having conversations with them about things like, you know, birth control or the family dynamics thing that we talked about earlier. There's just, another massive it is a, thing it, in and it, of itself. It is yeah. a it is a ma- like having the conversation. One of our biggest topics in premarital counseling is how do you leave and cleave? How, you know, I mean, you know how many times Genesis two twenty four shows up? Not just you know the, the repeating of it in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, that leave and cleave principle is paramount for a healthy relationship. But oftentimes, you know, men and women are not prepared to know how to do that. Yeah. And even if they're prepared to do that, maybe their parents aren't prepared to know how to do that. And so it can be a, a, a war of two worlds right. as they're trying to set those boundaries, creating a new, a new family of origin. Right. So what about issues like pornography? Let's say you have a guy who struggles with pornography who's just waiting for marriage to fix it. I've actually met guys that have have said and who think yeah. marriage is going to solve their addiction to pornography. How would you counsel yeah. someone in this session that's dealing with that and their future spouse? Yeah. Well, one of the things that I do is um, I recommend if we do have like a—what we'll say in this case because eight out of ten of them are men, you know, yeah. who mm-hmm. struggle with it. Um, if I'm talking with a guy and he is he has or is struggling with pornography, I will often recommend that he go through separate counseling other than premarital counseling. We'll address mm-hmm. it basically mm-hmm. in premarital counseling. I want to help the the uh, the wife, the, the prospective wife, you know, the future wife. I want her to understand the nature of pornography. I want you know to, to her to understand that like if he's been partaking of that while they've been dating or engaged. That's not about her. That's about him. That's about his own sin and his own issues because, you know, wives often yeah, take that personally. Right. Sure. If I was pretty enough, if I was good enough, if I was thin enough, I'm I was not whatever. satisfied. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. That's right. So mm-hmm. they begin to take ownership of that. So we have those basic conversations. But I am very, very, very candid with men in premarital counseling who 
you know, they kind of take that verse where, you know, Paul says, you know, it's better for you to marry than burn. And their their idea is, well, I'm going to get married and that's going to that's going to fix the pornography like it's it's mm-hmm. going to. But marriage doesn't fix a lust problem. Yeah. And and marriage certainly doesn't fix an addiction problem. And so if they've been doing it for a while and in our culture today, the reality is many of these guys that I do premarital counseling with, they've been looking at pornography since they were nine or 10 years old. Mm-hmm. So by the time they get to me, they've literally got a 10-year history with pornography, and they're full-blown pornography addicts mm. at 18, 19, 20 years of age. And by, and by addiction, I mean like it's literally changed their brain chemistry. They've used it so much. And so wow. I, I try to help them understand, listen, one, this is a sin issue. But it's not just a sin issue. You need to make sure that this thing is licked because I can promise you when you get married, it, that is a, it is a temporary fix. And what, what often happens is that pornography will abate for a short period of time, but then it always tends to come back up. Or a worst case scenario is not only does it come back up, that husband then begins to to use his wife the same mm-hmm. way that he would use pornography. In other words, she's just an object. Mm-hmm. So it's not him connecting with her for unity, for love, for joy, for, you know, because he cares about her. It's because I have a sexual need. Like I, yeah. I, I, I have a sexual need that has to be fulfilled and you're the object of that. Yeah. And right. and that's that's devastating for a partner to begin to feel that way. And so we have very candid conversations about that. And I want to know if they have a history, I want to know what their history is of victory over that. And and I'm very leery about marrying someone who, you know, they say, well, you know, I've had like four months of sobriety, you know, six months of sobriety, and they've had maybe multiple of those over several years. But it, it sounds like it's a pretty developed addiction. I want them to get some real victory underneath their belt before they get married. Because again, the consequences, not just to them, but to the spouse can be catastrophic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I think is, is very important for, uh, for, you know, to bring into the conversation when when we're talking about this, especially when we're dealing with counseling, uh, premarital counseling, is that uh, victory isn't, I'm no longer doing that. That's right. Victory is I'm loving well. That's exactly right. And you have some folks that will say, well, I, I haven't, you know, I don't watch that anymore. I don't go to that site, you know, or, or anything like that. But they still have, to your point, they still have that, that sense of objectifying. Right. They still have that sense, you know, they're still not, not developing a good, healthy bond right. with their, with their, with their, uh, their spouse. And, and that's the, the end game. The end game isn't I'm not. That's right. You know, the end game is I am, that's exactly you know, right. and I'm doing this and I'm living in a, in a healthy way that will glorify Christ. Yeah, it's 100% true, Ron Jor. It's not just a, a life of, of abstinence from whatever that sin is, mm-hmm. like in pornography, it's not just the absence of pornography. It's the pursuit of purity. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. the pursuit of holiness. It's mm-hmm. the pursuit of loving well. Mm-hmm. It's the That's pursuit good. of rightly understanding why my spouse has been given to me, and 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 she has been given to me not as a sex object, mm-hmm. not not you know not to be used. She's been given to me as someone who is partnering with me in the gospel, yeah. and I have an opportunity to love her well, and she has an opportunity to love me well. And listen, sex can be foot. Fun and enjoyable and excellent and awesome and all of those things, but we don't 
do it just for the funness of that. We mm-hmm. do it because there are some very spiritual things that happen yeah. as a result of the one flesh relationship, yeah. and we yeah. have to help men and women rightly understand that. Right. Absolutely. So I've heard some pastors counsel couples not to use words like never or always, like you yep. never do this or you always do this right. in their communication with one another. Do you agree with that? Or are, are there any other words that you would include maybe to be off limits in a marriage? <laughs> Yeah, so I, I do, you know, that that sort of catastrophize, those catastrophizing kinds of words, always and never, and, you know, it just, here's the problem with those words, here's the reason why we say don't use them, right? Because if you say you always to your partner, immediately their brain thinks of the three exceptions to the always <laughs> that you just said, and now they're focused more on the exceptions than what you're really trying to right. communicate, which is this behavior that I'm saying that you're always doing is really bothersome to me. But now they're not even focused on the behavior. They're focused on the reason why you're wrong because you've now said something that's that's untrue. Yeah. Even if it's mostly true, like even if there's only two exceptions to the rule, <laughs> yeah. their brain will focus on the two exceptions to the rule. In that moment, you've lost credibility that's because exactly you said right. always. That is exactly, so anything so, that you say after that is that, not valid. That is 100% true. <laughs> and so, yes, we do want to try to stay away from sort of that that global language. The other thing that I would say, and it's not necessarily a word that you don't use, but it is it is an approach to communication. I call this kind of the gold standard for communication in couples, and that is when couples have the opportunity, when they communicate, especially over difficult things, that that communication starts softly, not aggressively, not harshly. John Gottman talks a lot about this in his writings, but we start those conversations softly or gently and we always start those conversations with not an accusation of, well, you do this and you do that and you know, you're to blame for this, but we start with here's what's going on with me. Like here's here, here's what I feel. You know, mm-hmm. I'm you know, if, if I if I come home late three, you know, three days in a row and I walk in the door and the first thing Wendy says to me is, You are so selfish, like you only think about yourself. It's three days in a row you've been late. You don't think about me. That type of communication doesn't it doesn't invite me to accept her influence. It's Mm -hmm. hostile. It doesn't invite me to open up my arms and say, I really want to hear what you have to say. It really puts me on the defensive, and it really makes me want to bat back the things that she's saying to me versus if I come in and she says, "Um, I'm, I'm really hurt. And I'm and I'm disappointed. And, you know, you, you came home late for the, you know, for the third night in a row. And I'd like for us to have a conversation about that. Is there anything that we can do differently? Do we need to, you know, do you need to tell me a different time that you're going to be home? You know, do we need to back the time up? Do we, well, what can we do? How can we work together to solve this issue mm-hmm. versus, and this, again, it's a gold standard of communication when there's problems, especially when you view your partner as the problem. Instead of the problem being the problem, mm. it almost always sabotages your communication. Mm. Right. So my lateness is the problem. Now, granted, I'm the one that's late, so we would mm. typically like to, well, that's my problem, right? It may not be my problem. There might be a host of things that are contributing to that problem. When my wife and I can lock arms together and say, can we work on this issue together? Mm. Because I love you and I care about you, and together we can solve this communication goes well. Mm. But in unhealthy couples who don't have that kind of gold standard of communication, they go immediately for the accusation, and it completely shuts communication Mm. down. So Mm. I would stay away from any kind of communication that catastrophizes the other person, that uses that kind of global language, or that kind of attacks 
you know, the character, the the personhood, you know, of a spouse, and instead invites, you know, we, we want them to instead invite opportunities to accept each other's influence by not only what we say, but how we say it. So much of communication problems in couples is not even the content of what is said. Mm. It's how they say it mm. to one another. Mm-hmm. And if they could just adjust how they say it a little bit, their communication could be completely different. So I heard you have this thing called the state of the union that you share with with couples you're counseling. Yeah. Can you elaborate what that is? Are you having couples live streaming presidential State <laughs> no, of the Union addresses? It's, it's a great question. I, it's a John Gottman thing, right? So it's a, it's a thing that he's done uh, for for years, and uh, and so he teaches it in his material, and, and so I, I've kind of borrowed an adaptation of what he does. Um, the I do about ten to twelve hours of counseling every single week. The majority of couples I work with are couples who are in crisis. Uh, when they get to the end of going through counseling, I will ask them, uh, what's one or two things that you learned in counseling that were most transformative for your relationship and you feel like helped the most? And 99 out of 100 times, the State of the Union is going to be one of the things that they that they mm-hmm. identify. So State of the Union basically is one hour set aside every week for the sole purpose of investing in your marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I encourage couples to pick the same time every week. So for Wendy and I, it's 9 p.m. on Sunday nights. And for us, you can add or take away things in the, uh, you know, in your State of the Union. But for Wendy and I, we do five things in our State of the Union. The first thing we do is a marriage assess- is, is a marriage assessment. On a scale of one to ten, we rate our marriage as it stands today. One's low, ten's high. One's bad, ten's good. One is it's a miracle we didn't divorce yesterday. Ten is we ought to write a book on marital marital happiness and fulfillment. So what number would we give it? And so each one of us gives a number, and then we talk about what that number represents, and we can compare it to last week's number. So if it went up, we can talk about why it went up. If it went down, we can talk about why it went down. So that way there are never any surprises like I sometimes get in counseling when a husband and wife come in for counseling, and I say on a scale of one to ten, rate your marriage and and she says two and he says eight, you know, and mm. it's like somebody hasn't yeah. been having conversations right. about where their marriage is, right? So the first thing we do is a marriage assessment. What's the number and why is it what it is? Second thing we do is called five appreciations. So here's five things I appreciate about you. Um, we try to make it very specific. You know, I appreciate when you brought me lunch. I appreciate whenever you picked up the laundry. I appreciate the investment that you made in the kids by, you know, helping them with their homework. Um uh, again, Gottman's material kind of has kind of backed this up, but uh, good, healthy marriages—they have what's called a culture of appreciation. Mm-hmm. There's a—they have a genuine good feeling about their partner, and they talk about those good feelings often. So, five appreciations is one way to do that. Mm-hmm. Third thing is any unresolved conflict or issues that we need to talk about as a couple. So maybe we had a little bit of. You know, um, maybe we had a fight or a discussion, as we like to call them around my house. You know, we had a little bit of a discussion this last week, and it didn't it didn't turn out quite so well. Maybe there's a little bit of residue left from that, a little bit of distance between Wendy and I, and we need to talk about that. And so, in that in that third step, we're going to talk about any unresolved conflict. We'll make that right. We'll say our apologies, ask for forgiveness. You know, kind of walk through a process for doing that. Or if there are just other issues that we just need to talk about, you know, we're trying to make a decision about something or, you know, there's just a, something's come up with our kids or our in-laws or something like that. We'll have that conversation during that third thing. The fourth thing is we calendar. And so we talk about, you know, what's coming up this week. A lot of conflict happens because couples just don't simply communicate on expectations of what's happening during the week. Mm-hmm. And especially when they have young kids, they're going in different directions and they've got soccer practice and music practice and band practice and football and, you know, glee club and academic decathlon and all that. And they don't communicate about that. And then, you know, one of them gets stressed because one person didn't, well, you did, I told you that. 
uh, no, you didn't. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. Well, if we calendar it every week as that fourth thing, <laughs> mm-hmm. we can cut down on an awful lot of conflict. Right. So yeah. fourth thing is we yeah. calendar. And the fifth thing is the one that I really love. Um, so we end our time uh, with number five, and that is what's one thing I can do for you this week that will show you that I love you? Mm-hmm. What's one thing that I can do for you this week that will show good. you that I love yeah. you? And, and, and so we know that even if we don't do anything else this week, we're going to do this one thing. You know, here's the one thing that we're going to work on this week that's going to show our spouse that we're prioritizing them, that we love them, that we care about them, and that they're important enough that we're going to follow through on this is the one thing that they've asked us to do this week. And so we encourage couples to do that. That one, And that usually takes about an hour. And so we encourage them to do that every single week at the same time. And when they do that, it's amazing how much better their communication gets and how much their conflict goes down, how much the culture of their marriage changes from one of negativity to positivity if they'll just do that one thing. It's called the State of Our Union. I love it. So, so what are some resources that you would recommend for pastors regarding premarital counseling? Yeah, H. Norman Wright probably has the best book, and it's been around forever. Um, but it's called uh, Before uh, Before They Say I Do. It's probably one of the best books out there. And he literally, for pastors, lays out a process, session one, session two, session three. Like This is even the order in which you can cover each one wow. of, these, of these steps. So that's a great resource. I mentioned Prepare and Rich earlier. I would recommend for any pastor that's going to do weddings regularly— they ought to get certified in Prepare and Rich. It's a, it takes one day to get the certification. The certification's good for life. Uh, they can they can go on Prepare and Rich's website, find somebody to do their certification. I do the certification here for our students on campus that want to get that done. Um, it's a it's a one day like a six or seven hour certification, and then again Prepare and Rich as a resource. Not only do they do the assessment. But then they have like homework assignments that go along mm. with each one of the sessions. So like when they're talking about communication, they can go to Preparing Witches website and they actually have printable PDFs for free that they can print out and they can give to their people that are, you know, gonna be talking about communication. And so it's another it's another really, really great resource. Again, CCEF uh, is a Christian Counseling Education Foundation is a good uh, good resource, kind of clearinghouse. So they have some really great premarital and marital counseling resources as well. And they're just a trusted site that has mm-hmm. a lot of different things that are mm-hmm. available to the folks that um, go on there. Well, do you have any uh, final words of encouragement? Anything? Uh, I mean, obviously, we've got pastors, and I'm sure— Many of them uh, have couples in their church or maybe even outside their church that are looking for some type of counseling. Any any words of encouragement that you want to give them? Yeah, I mean, I would just say, um, you know, for pastors, um, really strongly encourage first couples that are getting married. Make sure that you're encouraging premarital counseling for them. Like, again, we're reducing the divorce rate by as much as 80 percent if they'll do that. Like, that's a big that's a pretty big stat. So encouraging premarital counseling, and then for couples that are struggling in uh, in their congregation, encourage them to go sit down and talk with somebody. Mm-hmm. Like um, there is a difference. I, I, this is this is really important. There's a difference between marriage enrichment and marriage restoration, yeah. and most pastors do a great job at marriage enrichment. Mm-hmm. But marriage restoration requires a lot more investment and a little additional skill. And my friend, Dr. Brad Hambrick, likes to say when we give enrichment-grade solutions to restoration-grade problems, we only make the issue worse. Mm. 
And there is a lot of truth to that. Mm-hmm. And so have pastors be involved in enrichment, having conversations with couples in their church, encouraging their marriages to get better and investing in them to do that. But then when it's marriage restoration, like when a marriage reaches kind of a crisis point or even a premarital couple that's trying to get married and they reach a crisis point, sometimes a referral is a necessary next step. Mm-hmm. Well, that'll do it, Dr. Cockrell. Thank you again for joining today's discussion. We want to thank you again for listening to another episode of Pastor Matters. If you found this episode helpful, consider leaving us a five-star rating and review. We'd love to hear any feedback you'd be willing to give. As always, it is our mission at the Center for Preaching and Pastoral Leadership to equip and encourage pastors, and I hope we've done that today with our conversation. And as always, friends, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain.